previously on the censor. Hikadaf has begun to grow and learn within the walls of Tel Bathud, the great abbey of Hosubain. Though he is the ward of the gentle brother Kaiban, he must work with and learn alongside the other brothers, mainly the second youngest brother, Tobek, whom he helps convey grapes to the tiresome brother Gomad, the ceremonious winemaker. On their way back to the vineyards, they run afoul of the Pabo, the archbishop of the Tell, who demands of their memory the tale of Seja. Why would the Pabo demand this? It is because Hikadaf has an apparent knowledge of dream divining, and the Pabo has need of this skill. The Censor by Seth Brady Chapter 13 The Pabo's Dream Although I am the Pabo, I do not have the ability to interpret dreams. However, I have had significant dreams in recent weeks which caused me to wake prematurely, much sooner than would the light of dawn appear in the sky. Had it come to me once, I would have been lost in the conscious elucidations of my meditation and it has recurred and roused me from my sleep often. This is it. In this dream, I am a woman. As in most dreams, I am not aware of the falseness of this state. I am as certain of my own womanhood as I am now certain of my manhood. Yes, I realize that this would be considered the precursor to some insidious blasphemy in most cases but you must listen to the remainder of this dream story before you condemn me. As a woman, I have begun my day and stand at the exit of my home, where I face a dawn of infinite possibilities. It is the dawn that God had perceived when he stamped away the flames of creation and laid bare the earth. It is such a space of possibilities that any man or woman would wilt from the terror but I am always serene. I am not boasting when I say this, for I am certainly the Pabo when I am in this state. This can be seen in the aspect of my neighbors, who are the sort of people that no one on earth has ever seen. They wear thongs of deer hide and paint meaningful symbols on their chest, shoulders, and limbs with clay, and they live in little houses made of woven grass. Their limbs are rude and simple things, most of them being two clawed appendages and a few ending in crude hooks. I cannot see any sign of worship that these people invest themselves in. Even the symbols that are painted on their skin by clay mean little more than their name and station, and moreover, they are a means of cooling the skin and protecting it from the sun. It would be easy for a cosmopolitan Hosea to look upon these people and call them heathens who are like animals. But they were the people of God. They knew God so well that they need not speak his name to exalt him. Because in their simple lives they have never put the barrier of civil works between them and their spirits. 
Though they did not erect superficial idols of worship, their houses of woven grass were, in themselves, tributes to the holy consort. They are built in a spiral pattern like that of a sea snail, moreover resembling the construction of Gudin's arms and legs. There was another pause from the old man. He had said many things that a child of four wouldn't understand, but Hikadoff's eyes were full of comprehension. As it would always be, the child's face was both knowing and kind. The pabo continued the tale of his dream. In this little village that reveres God and his consort, all of the people were standing inside their huts. They were fixated on a stranger to the village and had roused me from my hut to see him. This stranger was worn from a long journey that had nearly taken his life. I could tell that his journey could not have been an easy one, because the country all about this village was a desert of endless vastness and was locked within a shoreless continent. In the memory of that dream, I knew that the whole world was an uncompromising tyrant that sought to draw out the water of its people, and that the only way for one to survive was to cleave yourself to your family, and, as a family, cleave your family to your neighbor. As the desert nomad gathers water from every scant trace in a tremendous distance, and insists it in a protected horde, so did these people gather their small and scattered numbers so that they might not evaporate into the blistering heat. This was necessary, for there was nothing besides this country. Yet, a nomad from a seaside city wandered from his plentiful home and traveled beyond the boundaries of this planet to find this little village. As I looked upon him, he was yet in the throes of harshnesses that he faced in this journey. His hair and beard had grown considerably, faded considerably in the sun, and then dried to a brittle thatch. By his words, he was in his twenties, but the desert had aged him before his time so that he was browned and shriveled and nearly insane. By his words, he knew God as we knew him, but he was not come to the village to proselytize to us. He knew this because even as his thirst and famine had pushed him to the cusp of an agonizing death, he did not cry out for water, but for the grace of God. Where he did come from, which was a city called Kasibayan, God was absent. In the words of this stranger, God had fled this place because the citizenry had gone mad. They were speaking about a person named Yos, and saying that, Yos told us to levy taxes. Yos told us to stamp out the voice of Dramtor. Yos is my master. But they were not truly speaking about God. They had rendered the name of God into a stamp of earthly authority, and they forgot to speak to him. So he fled to this desert, where the queen of desire tramples on lost souls, and from where the king of the rivers brought his conquering host. At first, he found no evidence of God or indeed any life of his making. Then, after an interminable period of stumbling, drought, and the scourge of the unforgiving light, he discovered these people. As he spoke this, and as a child of freshly proven limbs limped to him with a bowl of water, I woke up. 
I always wake up at this point, and the knowledge of my manhood and of my people returns to me as an ironclad axiom. It is a touching story, and richer than one I've read in the dreams of the prophecies in the Benath, but it is of such character that I cannot disregard its significance. No child would dare speak to the Pabo, and even grown Hosea would not speak to him unbidden, but Hikadoff spoke to him as soon as the story was concluded. Oh, Pabo, before you woke up, when this child was getting water for this man, were you dismayed for the sake of this man? Tobek, who was wrapped from the course of the story in spite of his cramped legs and back, did not think to castigate his young brother of the tell. Hikadoff, you must never speak to me or look at me without my bidding, said the Pabo with no real sternness. However, yes, I was dismayed throughout this dream at the state of this traveler, for I fully expected him to die on his feet even as he besought our help. Yet again, what I always feel is this child, who is nearly your age, toddles over to the man with a bowl of water, is relief. This is a different feeling, yes, because it contrasts with the concern, but it is also different because I feel relief as a man and as Pabo, and not as a woman of these simple people. At this, the Pabo was silent again, and he could off remain quiet. Tobek, it is unfair of me to keep you here and have you run afoul of Gomad in his treatises. Still, you have learned something of the homily in the Book of Seja so you may have an answer to his unanswerable questions. Now take up your basket and go on with your duties. So Tobek did as the Pabo spoke, and Hikadoff and the Pabo were alone in the passage, seated on the floor like beggars who have found poor comfort in the solidity of the ground. They remained quiet, listening to the faint sounds that were typical in the tell, until the Pabo could no longer hear Tobek's footsteps. You have an answer to this boy. No child of four would look upon an ancient like me and listen so blandly, as if my words did not carry the weight of a high cleric. You have given me an open ear, and you have not reacted with surprise, and that is because you are not surprised. Now look at you. You see my fury, and you do not even flinch. I heard you this morning, weeping because you wanted to sleep more and Kaiban was chastising you for it. There is little shame in this, because such sensitivity is typical in a young child. But now, look at you, your blandness, your serenity. I am so sorry, O Papo, said the boy. It is only that I knew about your dream before you told me about it. This made the Papo more furious still. Quiet. Again, you are speaking without my allowing you to speak. I have not seen such boldness since the Kotal Beskig rode through the gates of this city. Now explain this lie you just told me. How could you have known about this dream? I dreamt it myself, except I was not a woman. I was a grown man, and I was very hungry and thirsty. And I was looking at these people that I've never seen before in my life. They were coming out of their houses, and they had these swirling lines on their arms and chest, and these little dots around their necks. Here, 
And there was this one lady who was just coming out of her house, and she was wearing a wide belt that had colorful squares and lines on it. She looked very happy. The Pabo, who was quivering with rage, held his hand fast as he suppressed his urge to slap the boy. He was very insolent, and very conversant of something that he had no authority to know about. Moreover, he did not feel sorry about this fact, but behaved as if this knowledge was his right. Then again, the Pabo did not wish to hurt the boy. He had a hypothesis about this child as he heard him speak to Tobek, and allowed that this child may be innocent enough to speak to God without discipline. As it turned out, his knowledge was wrong, and yet right in a way that made the Pabo fearful. Yes, she was wearing a sash of woven grass, with little beads and rawhide strings woven in to make a colorful pattern. Some of the squares on her sash signified that she was unwed, and that she was to live alone in her hut before she found a suitable husband. She was young, and maybe the same age as this stranger, and she was afraid that she would never find a husband in this tiny village, and that she would slowly become a grandmother to all her people. Her name, I think, was Koequato, which is a name that is never mentioned in the Banath. You may not know this, young Hikadaf, but every name that Ahosia takes is from the scripture of one type or another. What do you think of that boy? I do not know, O Pebo. Who are these people? Boy, I do not know. There are no living people in the desert that we know about. And if there were, Kotal would have seen them in his foolish voyage across the Khalit. The heathen Baitashir, who would fast in the deepest deserts as part of their devotions, have described a kind of people who would feed them in their most desperate conditions. But these tales are always unreliable. They are varied, and they seem to be partly based on invention and sunsickness. There was another silence at this point, though it was not affected by the papo. He needed to think something over in this circumstance. Hikidaf, it seems to me that, in your dream, you were the starving man that I saw. You are very young, but you must have seen this already. Now, as this young woman, I know my name, even though it was never spoken in the dream. Hikidaf, do you know what the name of this man is, the hungry man? Again, the silence fell over them and Hikadoff's serenity broke. He began to look confused, then miserable. My name is Hikadoff. Yes, boy, I know your name. Perhaps I am explaining this poorly. You are only four years old yet, so you dreamt that you were this very hungry and thirsty man who came very far through this desert to find God. You talked about yourself in this dream, and you felt everything that this man felt, just as I did with this woman. Now, you must know the name of this man. What is this man's name? The miserable countenance did not fade from Hikadoff. To him, the truth of the matter was trapped within the limitations of man's understanding, and he had only the faculties of a child, yet. I do not remember his name, O Pabo, said Hikadoff. The child was so confused at that point that he truly forgot the man's name. The Pabo was very near to a significant truth. Perhaps, he figured, the man was someone he knew, 
and that this event was one he could heroically intercede for for the benefit of God's glory. And then this child, who had within him a rare spiritualism, and is near to an historic epiphany, becomes a common child again. He hung his old head and resigned to himself the mystery that is the grand machination. Yes, it is difficult to remember what you dreamed about most of the time. Now go run and help Tobek. It is your duty as a brother of the Tell to help your fellow brothers. And they both rose to their feet and walked past one another. The Censor was written and narrated by Seth Brady, with music made by Noah Pardo. This is Seth Brady here, and I'd like to thank you for listening. If you would, please uh, like and subscribe this show on iTunes. And uh, if you want to listen to more of Noah Pardo's music, find him on Insta- find him on Instagram, I meant to say, at NPX Sound. You can also follow this uh, show on Twitter at TCensor. That's the letter T and the word censor. Not the censor with an S or the censor with um, an O uh, the, as the pen, penultimate letter, but C-N-S-E-R, the incense burner. Again, as I always do in this show, um, well, actually, before I uh, you know give my uh, little coda there, I... Also want to remind you that this show has a website, uh, thecensor.com, and a Facebook page. Uh, you can find that at the Censor Podcast at facebook.com slash thecensorpodcast. Now, here's my little uh, here's my little spiel that I give at the end usually. Um, do not follow the religion that is described in the show. Any, actually, any of the religions don't follow any of these religions because they are fake. Um, they are not meant to be followed. They are meant to just be the background and the substance of this story. They're not a suggestion or anything like that. And also, I'd like to, um, I'd like anyone who listens to take into consideration that the world described in this story is a very backwards and, um, uh, well, I wouldn't say barbaric, but I would say uncultured one. They do not treat women well. They do not treat people of other um, ethnicities or religions well. Um, in some ways, you could describe it as an allegory of the real human race's um, problems, but Really, it is just a description of an, of an ancient world with ancient prejudices that I hope someday will become obsolete and uh, unknown of, un, unknowable someday. So do not base your own decisions or your own actions on the, that of these characters. These are, this is not meant to be an allegory. This is just meant to be a, a fantastical tale where... Well, maybe some things uh, look preferable and nice, but other things you look upon them and think, I'm glad our world isn't like that. And, well, 
we'll keep striving in that direction, won't we? Anyway, if you're listening, if you've gotten this far, I thank you for your patience. And uh, I urge you, please tell other people about this so they may hear this, uh, hear this gospel. Not, not follow it, of course, but just hear it and uh, take from it whatever they might. Thank you, my friends.